Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We ask if Robert Kubica really is ready for an F1 race return and review the Grand Prix season so far. Well, given we're at the halfway point of the Formula One season, we thought it'd be quite a good time to look back over the season so far and also take a look at some of the big talking points. Robert Kubica and his test with Renault could have come back really beyond. Plenty for us to get our teeth into. My name is Ed Straw, the editor-in-chief of Autosport. And joining me first is Autosport's Grand Prix editor, Ben Anderson. Now, Ben, you are the the famous purveyor of Autosport driver ratings. Your, your infamous video talking about your hungry driver ratings has created all sorts of interest on... Have we gone on, viral? I don't know whether viral would be right, but we've had oh, some fairly okay. forthright responses. So we haven't quelled the storm of vitriol. There's still concerns about all your terrible biases. Oh, well. It was ever thus. Exactly, exactly. Well, that's Ben Anderson, so you can send some abuse to him on social media about... Or rate, rate his podcast performance. That would be even better. I reckon you're on for a two. <laughs> as high as a two <laughs> exactly so, oh, uh, something to build on well i'm expecting you to drop the microphone at some point so <laughs> and also joining us we have karun chandok who was once a racing driver of still am <laughs> i suppose you did you're look- not at Le Mans. ed there's a motorsport world outside the f1 bubble claim to the dream i know i was there at Le Mans. i saw you finish it where you t- we 10th 10th 9th that's not bad in a 
in a, a new team to LMP2. There we go. That's that's going to be. What do, what rating did you give Karun? I didn't rate him. He didn't get into my. You didn't rate him. No, <laughs> never rated. Well, that's an interesting question because I thought, seeing as we we're talking about driver ratings, it might be quite interesting to revisit 2010 Formula One season. Karun Chandot, HRT driver, Edge Draw, Autosport. F1 editor, I think oh. I was. And I just thought we'd have a quick look at the, the marks. So let's see if you think oh. these are fair. Go on. Bahrain, I was very generous. Eight. Okay. Yeah. Hadn't driven the car before. Yep. You, you did crash after a couple of laps. Uh, uh, yes. And you got an eight. I got an eight. He, well, didn't, I, he didn't drive the car before qualifying. Oh, okay. Then. Fair yeah. enough, yeah. Uh, Australia, seven. Yeah. That's all right. Malaysia, seven. You had a spin in that race. No, I didn't. Didn't you? I didn't have a spin. I passed my teammate. Thank you very much. And oh, there we go. So I think that needs a re-rating. I expect that. Well, that's Thank you. I put the word spin in brackets. In I, 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 passed, I passed him and finished 21 seconds ahead or something like that, I think. Well, find. there we go. There we go. Oh. You, didn't, you didn't pass him backwards. And Shut therefore up. did both. No. <laughs> China 6. <laughs> yeah, that was dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest. Was, was 6 generous then? Right, we could go on here for a long while then. But, I mean, I mean, at least you had a bit of variety. I did notice Pandison's hungry ratings. Everybody got a 7 or an 8, pretty much. Well, that's, so. what, that's what you are in a lot of your careers. Yeah, that's incorrect. There was a 5. There were a few 6s in well, there as well. I know, but across the board. Anyway, I mean... If it was up to Ben, Grosjean will be a 10 every weekend and Kimmy would be a 2, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would be That's fair. That's kind yeah. of no, Grosjean, Grosjean the, uh, 15. Ben Anderson rating. <laughs> yeah. I, got, I got some abuse from Grosjean earlier in the season for giving him too low ratings, so that doesn't really tally with the general impression. <laughs> oh, that's, that's not very good, is right. it? Yeah. Well, let's, uh, Spain, 7? No, Spain, I thought it was a bit better. Monaco, 6. You parked under Jano Trulli. That was definitely he, your fault. He <laughs> did park on my head. I think you'll find, yes. I'm told he, he parked on my head. I'm told he did have a radio message suggesting it was quite important that he uh, yeah. he, he gamble for that move because it, it would have briefly launched HRT. It into wasn't a case of you putting jump. your head where it didn't belong. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Turkey six. Yeah, Turkey wasn't good. Canada six. So you oh, did right Canada in Canada. Was good. I Why did you give me such a bad rating in Canada? I don't know. Probably... I need to take this piece of cake back, which I've just given you. I've already part digested it. <laughs> <laughs> that could <laughs> that, be messy. That, that uh, Europe, Europe seven. Uh, Valencia, yeah, that was right. Yeah, Britain six. I think, uh, yeah, that was right. And oh, then, Britain, we had floor damage. It damaged the floor on the first lap. I think. I think. Uh, of course. Yeah. Some was it also Silverstone that I almost fell out the bottom of the HRT motorhome while interviewing you? That was funny. Ed, Ed <laughs> sat on a chair, and the leg of the chair went through this massive hole. It was like <laughs> a, a, random oh, hole. a hole putting a vent pipe through. And or we, um, yeah, Ed had a fairly. Um, Panic look on his face at the prospect of somersaulting out of the HRD motorhome. It was a spectacular exit. I, I gathered it up, though. I gathered it up. And, of course, the race everyone forgets you did, Nürburgring 2011, was a Lotus driver. Yeah. Now, you got a six there. You didn't have much preparation. But no, I do, I I do remember you rally-crossing a bit. In that. Yeah. I, I'd, I, I'd never driven the car in the dry until that weekend, actually, which... Uh, it was extraordinary how it happened. We went... Every weekend, I went to do FB1. It rained. Um... Apart from one where I drove on the wall in uh, in Melbourne, but yeah, oh, I don't remember that one except when I oh, remind good. you about it constantly. Yeah. You do remind me on a weekly basis. We yeah. do. We have an ag- <laughs> we have an agreement on that. When you next win an international motor race, yeah. I'll stop doing you it. Stop doing that. Yeah, okay. it's just you yeah. haven't won an international motor race since yes, yes, two thousand and nine. <laughs> Is that the last one? The last GP two win. Uh, GP two was eight. Two thousand eight. Yeah, it's been a while. Well, there we go. There we not, go. Not easy to win races, though, is it? This not is, easy. This no. is why everyone thinks you're a retired racing driver. Well, you've got a lot more race wins than I've got, which, uh, in fairness, isn't saying much. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're done abusing me now. No, no we that, abuse other people. There'll on be this more podcast. to come. Well, let's let's go. We'll on get to, to that. Let's go on to somebody else. Let's go on to uh, Robert Kubica. 
tested in Hungary. His first proper F1 test, we'll call it. He's done some work in the in the old car. Um, so he ran in the Renault, contemporary car. Interesting performance. Lots of talk about whether he's going to make a comeback. Lap time was a 118.572. Sixth fastest overall in the test. There's slightly different views between... Well, ben and Karine. Let's, let's start with Karine in terms of what you think is going to happen and where you think Robert's at. Well, Ben's bet with pretty much the whole paddock that it's not going to happen. So just just for that, I hope it happens because he'll be out a few quid, I think. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think Renault of the view that that second car hasn't scored any points. And I think they're of the view that we might as well try something different. Uh, they'll get an, an extraordinary amount of publicity for doing it because it will be the best story of the year bar Fernando Alonso going to Indy. So the second biggest story of of the year, I think. You know, th- you know, we're talking about a guy, forget the injuries to his arm, you're talking about a guy who was on his deathbed and is going to come back to, you know, even the fact that he's driving a Grand Prix car is extraordinary. But I think we need to put all that aside because, you know, that, that's that's all well and good. But here we're talking about is he going to be quick enough to compete with the, uh, you know, the, the the fact that you, he's coming back from injuries is all well and good up to the test. From now going forward, it's about how quick will he be. Um, I saw him at Goodwood, and he he'd seemed really up for it. Uh, he had driven the 2012 car at that time. I spent a bit of time chatting with him, and um, you know, I've known Robert for many years. We raced together in World Series um, back in 2005, and we spent a bit of time close to each other in, in Italy, where he lives. So. You know, I, I knew I know him reasonably, um, and he he is massively motivated. He's lost a ton of weight. He's been training hard. Um, I think two years ago he drove the Mercedes Simulator. I think two or three years ago, uh, and he couldn't get enough steering angle to do the left hairpins like at Monaco. Uh, he said none of that's a problem anymore. So he's you know obviously Valencia where he drove has got fairly tight hairpins. Turn two, the last corner. Um, he didn't seem to think that was an issue. I think it's hard to judge Budapest because he's got in it. He's never driven a hybrid car. And having myself driven a hybrid car quite recently, like, it is quite different to the the previous normally aspirated ones. So I think, you know, it, to expect him to be bang on Nico Hulkenberg's pace within a day's testing in a in a hybrid car, plus the 2017 regulation of the aero chassis side of things, is unrealistic. But I think Renault's view is that it's not scoring points anyway, that car. So let's do something different. Give someone else a chance. If nothing, we'll get plenty of publicity out of it. And so I think they'll give him a go. That's all well and good, though. But if you take the view that it's not scoring points, they might as well throw you in it or or me or anyone. You know, yeah. that, but, that but I think it's isn't a, enough of an I argument. Think it's, uh, no, but I think it's worth the gamble is what I, I'm saying. I think it's, you know, he could turn out that to be back up to speed over maybe not the first race weekend or the second race weekend. But let's, you know, I think it's the, the F1 calendar today is significantly different in the sense that traditionally in the past, you'd have the European season and you'd have a couple of races off the back of it. Now, we, as we sit here, we still got nine races to go. So even if he takes two weekends to get up to speed, there's still seven races after that where he could potentially rack up some points. And you know, Renault as a as a team, I think have made a huge amount of progress this year, probably more than anybody else. The car is genuinely competitive. If you look at what Hulkenberg's pace was in Silverstone and Budapest, uh, if not for that problem on the pit stop, 
despite the grid penalty, he would have been seventh, I think, in the race. So, you know, they now genuinely are probably fourth or fifth best team. Renault's mission is to finish fifth in the Constructors' Championship. They keep restating that objective and they're behind target. So, in that context... 15 points. Yeah, only 15 points, but they're going to need both drivers scoring points through the rest of the season, you would imagine, to be able to achieve that target. They can't just rely on Hulkenberg till the end of the year unless they get really lucky. And it seems to me like a big gamble to throw in a driver, okay, who has a great reputation, but he isn't what he was before he had his terrible accident. It's a big risk to throw a driver like that into the car mid-season with that target in mind and hope that he'll get up to speed over a number of races. Also, Renault's saying that Okay, they're evaluating Kubica, but that's more of a medium, long-term plan for next year. They've got a contract with Palmer, so they'd have to sort the Palmer contract out, then get Kubica in. It seems to me more likely that they would score more points for the rest of the season persisting with Palmer if they can get him to have a clean weekend than they would trying to spend a number of races getting Kubica up to speed, bearing in mind the fact that he might not get up to speed. Well, well, let's define up to speed because it's quite there's there's different levels aren't there there's up to a, a decent speed to do a, the job of a decent grand prix driver there's up to speed to get to the level of robert kibitza before his accident who was a fantastically good driver his 2010 season with renault was fantastic i remember watching him at monaco trackside is absolutely breathtaking one of the most memorable driving performances i can remember seeing well, Suzuka as well. I Suzuka qualified in the yeah. front row, I think. Was it Suzuka? second or third on the I think grid? he may have been third, but he it was, was um, extraordinary yeah. qualifying. And he had the loose wheel, didn't he? Because it was yep. that point where the, some of the short threads on the wheel nuts were, were causing problems. So, well, that kind of kibitzi you would take immediately, wouldn't you? Oh, There'd without, no without thinking. So the question is, how close to that level is well, he able to I, I or can to he get? Your, to answer your question, Ed, I think he needs to be doing what we're seeing Van Dorn doing today, which is being a couple of tenths behind Alonso. Um, and, you know, uh, and therefore being either on the same row or one row behind him on the grid and finishing, you know, one or two places behind him. So if we think Hulkenberg's quite often, I don't know the num- exact number of times, but quite often he's got into Q3. He's sort of been six times s- this year, six times. So he's been sort of between sixth and eighth quite often. You'd have to think that the second car should also at least get into Q3 and be ninth or tenth uh, and i think that that to me is what is uh, to answer your question is what is really required from that second car and if if they do that then they will achieve that target of finishing fifth in the constructors world championship because i think force india are long gone so now you know they're fighting Haas, Toro Rosso, williams really in that midfield pack it's difficult to put yourself in the position of someone like robert kubica with their injuries got but obviously Karine, you know what it takes to drive these cars You've got a good idea of the the damage to Robert's arm. Obviously, it doesn't have full flexibility, as well as just the the obvious damage that you can see on it. Its its movements limited. Its strength must be limited because there's areas where the muscle just can't be what it was. You know, if you're about to drive a Grand Prix car and your right arm is at fifty percent, forty percent, thirty percent of what it needs to be, is it possible to drive a car at, at a good enough level? I think it is. Yeah, I, I genuinely think in terms of strength now there's two different things you need to separate here one is strength and one is feel in terms of of actual strength i think people forget actually that the power steering systems on modern grand prix cars are extraordinary the the steering is so is actually quite light compared to i mean 
if you compare the 92 FW14P I've been driving, one of the last generation of cars without power steering, you know, it's a really, really heavy car. Or even compared to a GP2 car, the steering is really heavy in it. But a, a, a modern Grand Prix car with a power steering, the steering itself is very light. You need a lot of core strength. You need a lot of strength in your back. You need lower body, cardio, neck, all of that stuff. All, all of which he can easily, you know, get fit at. Um, you don't necessarily need the arm strength that you needed um, 20 years ago. So in terms of strength, I don't think that's an issue. Now, in terms of feel, as you say, it's very hard for me to judge or anybody but Robert to judge because there's a neurological uh, side of it, you know, in terms of how are his nerves affected, you know, and, and therefore the sensitivity he has through that hand. How is he able to feel what's going on with the car? And, and that really is, for me, the, the more crucial one to, to answer. In terms of strength, I don't think there's an issue. For me, the question with Kubica is how diminished is, it, is he? And if you take a driver operating at that level, how many fractions of a percent or how many percent can you knock off before he becomes not a viable option to to bring back yeah i think that's that's the million dollar question isn't it it's essentially is a one-handed robert kibitzer better than a two-handed fully functioning but he's, Palmer? he's not one-handed though this is what he explained to me his right arm has got he's lost 30 to 35 percent of the strength so when they put him they sent they've sent him to do some physical tests and evaluations in a in a gym with physios and stuff and his right arm is basically operating at 60 at about 65 percent strength of his left arm so it's not like he's one-handed and i i bet 65 percent of his right arm strength is still stronger than you know a guy who never ever goes to the gym for example i'm not saying it's going to be stronger than uh another racing drivers but what i'm saying is it's not like he's completely one-handed it's that He's, he's lost certain functionality in terms of what he can and can't do and what buttons he can press and can't press and things like that on the steering wheel with the right arm. But but he's not he's not by any means driving with just one arm. So in that case, what's changed now compared to a couple of years ago when in his mind it was impossible? He could never come back. He could never race at the top level. And now we're talking about will he be at the next Grand Prix or before the end of the season? What's, I, what's I changed? Think, well, he, he said to me that he's develop strength in the right arm and it's a different way of life the bigger impact he's felt is actually in his day-to-day living there's things like muscle memory and stuff which you know you're used to using you you pick up a fork in a certain way which you're doing you know right now now say you have the injuries you've got your elbow and your arm and stuff you're gonna have to use different muscles and and, and the angle of which you apply things is different and it's the same thing in a race car i think the way and this, you know, I'm only going based on what he uh, has explained in that the way he's got to use his arm in day-to-day life is different. And, and similarly, obviously, driving a car is different. So I think mentally also he's he went off and did rallying and did this and did that. Um, and he's, you know, mentally he's decided, you know what, I'm going to have one proper crack at getting back into F1. I'm going to train really hard. I'm going to stop all this rallying, stop all this other stuff I'm doing. Completely focused, train, get prep. Did the GP3 test. Um, and I, I believe during that GP3 test, they put a bit of caster on the car as well to just load up the um, the steering weight. 
Uh, and obviously, they have no power steering, and he was fine. Your point is exactly right, that you won't know until he does a race weekend and uh, and he does qualifying. And the key, the key thing is how well he actually did in the test in Hungary. We can see some of the lap times. It looks on face value like he managed to get within a tenth of Palmer's qualifying time yeah, on ultra soft totally tyres it looked like he was doing short runs that they look a little bit like qualifying runs but obviously it's a different day and we don't know the fuel loads and everything else it's not a stunning performance but it's not a bad performance in the circumstances so Renault now has got to deliberate that test and decide well with a bit of work and a bit more seat time will he get to a level that is better than what we have now to me, we, we just don't know, do we? At the moment, to me, if they look at that test, and they have obviously all of the data, the fuel figures, and the tire info, track information, all that. If in that test he's got within two tenths of Palmer, then you'd have to assume straight away. Any racing driver will tell you you have a night's sleep, your brain soaks soaks in all of the information. You come back, you have another go between your first ever day in a whatever package to the second day you'll find half a second and so if he's if he's two tenths away on his first day let's say two or three tenths then you know it's worth the punt mm. that well that's against an underperforming palmer isn't it who had a bad weekend so the other question of course to weigh up against that is how close did palmer get to his potential in hungary Probably not very close, though. Actually, is it better to persist with him and get him closer to his potential than it is to risk Robert Kubica maybe being faster than he is now? My my concern with the whole thing is I just wonder, as great a story as it is, as wonderful as it would be to see Robert Kubica at his best come back to Formula 1, has Formula 1 just left him behind? Is it just a little bit too much of a gap from before to now for him to really be able to come back and be properly competitive well there's two scenarios aren't there well i guess there's a third scenario which is that he's not an option but either renault could put him in this season in place of palmer at some point there's always ways to extract people from contracts if you pay them enough and and pay what they're owed the other option is that they put him in for a full season next season and don't run him this year which is the option that renault have been kind of indicating that they are looking at but so those like science is available you got to have him, and that's that's exactly. the thing. I think ultimately, as as nice as it would be, I think Renault trying to be a serious works team. There are better, probably better, immediate options that they could go for. They they've banked their top driver. They've got Hulkenberg in there. He's performing brilliantly, as you mentioned. So they're not at risk, really, in terms of not having a benchmark or a driver they can trust. So it's just about plugging in the best available option alongside. And I think. On the current grid, there are drivers who could, again, if certain things work out, be made available for that second seat that are probably a better option than gambling on a driver who was once great but is now diminished and you're not really sure about his ultimate potential anymore. While it would be absolutely brilliant to see Kibitza back in it, there's two levels. I think from a personal perspective, it would be great to see him at least do some races. That would be fantastic. And from an almost more professional element, it would be great to see a driver of his level performing at the ability he used to be able to do. But... If you're a runner, you also have to look at it as nine races to go. Who's going to get you more points? A gamble on Robert Kubica or Julian Palmer. If Palmer goes through the rest of the season, he's going to get into the points, isn't he? Surely. I know he's done 11 races without scoring. But last but he, season, he's a driver capable of scoring points. We know that. So yeah, Maybe that's the bet that Ben needs to be making next. I, I wanted to end this this segment with a with a bit of a bet. So there's, there's sort of two sides 
Yeah, I'd like I'd like us to work on a on a bet about what what is going to become of Robert Kubica and Renault because Karine, you uh, see you seem I, I more think, positive. I, I I think he'll do some races this year. I don't know when, but I think at some point this year he'll do he'll do some races in a Formula One car. I'm just being pedantic yeah, yeah, here no, because he, I don't want you yeah, wiggling out of it. He'll replace Palmer at some point for some races this year. I think I don't know when, but I think it'll happen. Ben, are you going to take that bet? And what are the, what are the stakes? Uh, do you need a performance do element? We, do we bet cake? We could bet a pound. Or a we pound, could, a we, pound we, of we, cake. <laughs> <laughs> That's just my order. All right, well, I'll bet you a pound. Okay, I'll take your, your bet of a pound. I think more likely they'll persist with Palmer. I mean, unless Palmer has a, an absolutely shocking oh, second start to the second half of the season, then they might have to look at it just because, you know, like you say earlier, there's nothing to lose if he's not scoring points but I think more likely the test that he's done hungry maybe it's not really enough they can't bridge the gap in a short space of time I think Palmer will see out the season I think they'll look to replace Palmer at the end of the season and I think Kubica will probably end up in maybe an ambassadorial role he might do some demos some running maybe they'll plug him in for the odd test it's good PR but I just I just think the gap is too big for him to make a proper comeback so I don't see it well, that, that's the the thing, isn't it? For me, the heart says, yeah, it'd be great to see him back. The head says, mm, not sure. So we'll have to wait and see what happens with that one. That is one that only only time is going to tell us. Now, we also saw in that test Lando Norris running for McLaren. He's a McLaren Autosport BRDC award winner. And Kevin Turner, the Autosport magazine editor, who was part of the judging panel that awarded it to him, obviously is in a good position to, to judge how Lando Norris is getting on. So we thought we'd have a bit of a chat to him to see what he thought about Norris's performance and where he's going. Well, I think it's the thing that we're going to look back on in years to come as the thing that came out of that Hungary test. Obviously, the headlines were for Kubica, but I think uh, I think Lando Norris's performance was very, very impressive. If you remember, he's a, a 17-year-old uh, who'd never driven a, a current F1 car before. Uh, he did a 1 minute 17.385 uh, on the Ultrasoft, which was half a second quicker than Stoffel Van Dorn had done in basically the same conditions the day before. And that lap time's actually a couple of tenths quicker than Fernando Alonso did in qualifying for the race. Now, of course, that was on the on the uh, Supersoft tyre, and Pirelli reckoned that was probably half a second. So if you take that into account, he was within three tenths of a qualifying lap by Fernando Alonso, uh, which I think is pretty unbelievable, to be honest. What is it about this guy that's impressive then? Well, obviously he's fast, but a lot of young drivers are fast. Um, but he's so, it sounds like a cliche, but he's so mature for his age. He's actually very well grounded as well. Um, when I spoke to him after the test, he sort of went out of his way to downplay the lap time. So, well, yeah, well, we were going for qualifying runs. Not everyone was. Um, but I think it's telling that he's gone from, part, part of the uh, award prize this year um, was to become a simulator driver for McLaren and he went from being tested where they would just change things randomly uh, and see if he could pick up on it to basically doing race support for Van Dorn and Alonso during the course of Grand Prix and that happened very quickly during the year and then they quickly got him into a 2011 car uh, in Portugal and then suddenly he was doing the uh, doing the Hungary, official Hungary test so I think the way that he works with the team the speed that he learns things uh, how he applies himself. He's quite self-critical as well, which is very important for young drivers to not make excuses. He just looks at it and improves. I think um, he's really got all the attributes uh, required to be uh, uh, not just an F1 drive, but a, but a very, very good one. Inevitably, with him having McLaren links, the comparisons get drawn with someone like Lewis Hamilton. I can't think of a, certainly another British driver that's had that uh, had that rise. Obviously, he hasn't yet done 
uh, done the sort of F2 GP2 level yet, which which Lewis did, but he's you know he's done the karting thing. He's won that. He's won Formula Renault. Um, in fact, he won three different championships last year as well as the award. So he's actually probably won more car racing titles uh, than Lewis did at this stage of uh, of his career. So yeah, so he's he's the most. I think he's probably fair to say he's the most impressive award winner we've seen since Jensen Button in 1998 possibly I'd say there were probably four or five guys in the time that I've been involved with the award which was 2006 was there for 06 and 07 and then a judge from 2008 and there are another four or five names that have been pretty outstanding in that but I think um, uh, yeah, Lando has, has impressed the judges that have been around longer than I have and one of them was moved to say that that's the best young driver they've ever seen so um, yeah I think we're all, all pretty excited about him and it's very nice when you you see that potential and then he's immediately delivered in F3 and in his F1 test. Uh, so I don't think, um, I think the search for a British, next British F1 star, which we're always thinking about, um, and Silverstone, British Grand Prix, that's very key for them to get people through the gates to have a, uh, a British star. I think um, I, th- I think Lando's it, to be honest. Well, and certainly the point you make about his F3 performance, he's second in the championship at the moment in the thick of the championship battle with the far more experienced Maxi Gunter. So he's delivering on that, isn't he? Absolutely. And Gunter, of course, is driving for Prémer, who Lance Stroll absolutely destroyed the F3 field with last year. And Lando's with Carlin, who obviously got a fantastic track record in lots of junior categories, but had a pretty dodgy year in F3 last season. And so to be up there uh, in a very strong field of, of drivers, I think, that, again, the 2017 year F3 field is going to be is going to be one of those you look back on in, in years to come and go, wow, that was, there was a lot of talent there. So for him to be the outstanding rookie at the moment and chasing Gunter in the championship, very impressive indeed. For those not so familiar with the McLaren Autosport BRDC Award, which of course dates back to 1989, David Coulthard was the first winner of it. It's been awarded every year since. You mentioned Jensen Button's among the, well, he's the world champion among the winners, but Anthony Davidson, Paul DeRest, uh, some seriously good drivers that have come through that. Dario Franchitti, of course. What does it actually take to win that? It's got harder and harder over the years. Um, I mean, uh, the, the the main part of the test really is the is the running at Silverstone, where the finalist uh, used to be six, now four. Um, drive okay, an F2 car for, for now that's the old FIA Jonathan Palmer F2 car not a current F2 car that was GP2 um, so they're not familiar with it it's completely new to all of the all of the junior drivers and they get one car one chassis for the two days um, and we give them several runs several different challenges um, during that time old tyres new tyres and they also are uh, tested in a McLaren GT3 car and uh, a Mercedes DTM so it's uh, it's quite a big step from most of them. Most of the finalists, the quickest thing they've driven is probably a two-liter Formula Renault, and suddenly they're getting cars that have got twice the power and probably quite a lot more downforce. So it's a big test. Um, there's also fitness tests, uh, simulator work, uh, an interview. They, they they have to they do have to earn the, earn the award. So there's a few good reasons to keep an eye on the name Lando Norris and keep a sharp eye on F3 European Championship battles and whether he can win that title and keep an eye on him for the future. Absolutely, and if he's not in, uh, uh, even if he doesn't win the challenge, I think he'll be in F2 uh, or Super Formula in Japan uh, next year. And wouldn't, I, I, yeah, you could almost put your money on him being in F1 in 2019 or 2020, I would reckon. So enough of testing. It's now time to look back a little bit. We've had 11 races this season. Sebastian Vettel leads the championship. It's been Ferrari versus Mercedes all the way. Where do we think things have settled down to now? Well, if I had to choose a car that I wanted for the rest of the season, I think I'd choose a Mercedes. I think that the Ferrari at the moment seems to be very strong on circuits where you ha- need dirty downforce, 
circuits um, like Monaco, Budapest, where you know they they're very very competitive. On when it comes to the you know straight line speed, and we we we've, we've had various bits of onboards and data and stuff come through from FOM this year, and you quite clearly see as soon as you get to the second half of a straight, sixth, seventh, eighth gear, uh, particularly in qualifying Q3, the the Mercedes is just so so strong. And I think the Mercedes um, in Austria, I think they introduced an engine, a power unit upgrade, and that's carried them through um, Austria, Silverstone, and Budapest, um, which allows them to run the higher power mode, I think, for longer, basically. Uh, and in, in Q3, the power you know, advantage they've got really comes to the fore. And as soon as you qualify in front, you're in control of the race. And... Yeah, I think, you know, you'd have circuits like Singapore where you'd, you'd say the Ferrari are going to be right up there. But, you know, once you get to Spa, Monza, um, places like Suzuka even, I think the uh, the Mercedes is going to be the car of choice. Well, you'd have to say if you were to pick a car on a race-by-race basis, there's not many in the back half of the season that you'd plump for the Ferrari in, is it? No, and of course, across the season as well, you can see that Mercedes have been doing this really all the way through the V6 era. They've looked at the range of circuits and gone, well, we're going to design a car that works across the broadest range. And that means sacrificing the odd outlier. And you named those outliers. And it looks like Ferrari's approach is almost coming from the opposite end of the spectrum where they know they've got a power disadvantage. So they work on a car that's going to maximize their score at tracks where Mercedes are vulnerable. And then they're going to hope to push themselves up in other places. Lewis Hamilton said, didn't he, that he felt that Mercedes had just dropped points this year. And that's why the championship is as close as it is. And I think that's fair. If you look at how many poles Mercedes have had compared to Ferrari, like fundamentally that car is the quickest car on the grid, but they just haven't been able to maximise it every race. Whereas Ferrari have been able to get the absolute most out of what they've got or closer to the absolute most out of what they've got at most of the races. And they're kind of winning the championship without really having the fastest car, which is a great credit to them. But I think if you were... You would always pick the fastest car if you were going to pick one to race, wouldn't you? And I think, especially with the balance of circuits we've got coming up, generally more high speed and long straights, you would back them, back the Mercedes, providing they don't mess it up. And and also, I think um, you know we're all expecting Ferrari to take some engine penalties fairly soon. You know they they're already on their fourth one with both drivers, I think, on various components. So uh, you know there's a good chance they'll do what Lewis did last year and take them at Spa, where where Vettel and Kimi can potentially overtake and come through the pack. They're not going to do it at Monza, the home race. And I think Monza is actually quite hard to overtake. Yeah, you don't nowadays. see much passing at Monza, do you? No, it's quite hard to follow through Ascari and the le- and um, the Parabolica. So, therefore, the, the overtaking opportunities are actually not as many as you'd imagine. So, I could see them taking some, some at Spa. You know, even races like Sepang, for example, are actually quite good for overtaking. You know, but I think on Ben's point, Mercedes seem to um, suffer a bit more with the hotter races as well. I think the Ferrari works well in the high temperatures. Ferrari doesn't seem to work with the lower temperatures at all. Ferrari have also been very up and down. I mean, races like Baku, it, it was just inexplicable, really. The gap between them and and Lewis on pole, yeah. you know, it was massive. I think that's the only time this year they've really not, People made a lot of the. Sorry, I was going to say, and they made a lot of the engine modes. But I think that's one of the few occasions where they really messed up on the tyres. Ferrari, they, they didn't work them properly in the race. They were much more 
competitive and it looked much more back to the normal picture. So I think that's a bit of an outlier. But it does show that on there's certain types of track where the Mercedes inherent pace advantage just gets amplified and Baku was one and Silverstone was definitely another and you imagine there'll be more I think Monza could potentially be one depending on what Ferrari bring to their home race Suzuka will be another one Austin potentially could be another one I mean with stability in in the regulations though going into 2018 I'd be really interested to see because what happens with the development war because you know I can see this development war going much deeper into the season especially for those two top teams then they would have liked you know they're gonna have to really push push on and um especially with on the power unit side you know i think ferrari you know if they are going to take penalties and introduce new elements to the power unit they might as well do an upgrade and that's going to carry forward to 2018 anyway so i'd be interested to see if they're able to to really find the performance they need especially in that um you know, Q3 phase of the weekend. Who do you think's been the star performer driver-wise? Alonso, across the t- Well, I was going to say across the two big teams. Oh, right. <laughs> to me, uh, 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 Fernando Alonso doesn't inhabit the front of the grid, unfortunately, enough, no. these days. But I'm thinking within Ferrari and Mercedes. So on the one hand, you've got Vettel, who is leading the championship probably in a car that, certainly on, in pure pace terms, over the balance of the season so far hasn't been there quicker but Lewis Hamilton's been very strong Valtteri Bottas has done a great job I would say Vettel edges it for me almost by virtue of the fact that he leads the championship in a car that we probably would all accept isn't fundamentally the quickest okay he's got help from his teammates supporting him but you know he's managed to get pole position he's managed to win races that really he shouldn't have won I feel like he's been getting closer to the maximum out of his car across the balance of the races than the other top drivers I think Hamilton's peaks have arguably been higher than Vettel's so when he's on form, Hamilton has been almost untouchable like we saw at Silverstone. But there have been a few races where he's just gone missing, like Monaco, Sochi. You know, he was nowhere and made to look quite ordinary by his teammate. And Vettel hasn't really had any races like that, I don't think. So Vettel just edges it for me with Hamilton, Hamilton just behind, and then Bottas close up into that group. Raikkonen adrift. I, I would sort of agree. Um, I'm trying to think of a bad Vettel weekend, really, from this year. I mean, Silverstone, Raikkonen comprehensively outperformed him. Yeah, as I was about to say, apart as, from... As often is the case. Yeah, so yeah. Baku obviously had his mental moment behind the safety car, but yeah, performance-wise, yeah. performance he, he was roughly I was going to say, yeah. Silverstone's the only one I can think, and I think actually yeah, there, they could have helped him with strategy, and he would have ended up with a podium. Um, I, I, think, I think Ben's right. Actually, I think Bottas has been a very pleasant surprise uh, for a lot of people i think he he's got you know it can't be easy going into the lion's den up against lewis in a team where he's well established i think valtteri's done a really good job of okay he's had weekends where he's looked way off lewis's pace um but i think the mercedes is obviously quite a tricky car to get in the sweet spot you know you're seeing more peaks and troughs from the mercedes um from from the drivers so there's certain weekends, Canada, Silverstone, where Bottas didn't look anywhere close to Lewis. Uh, there's been other weekends where he's been really good. At, and yeah. for him to go into the summer break, 6-5 in qualifying. I, and I thought, actually, Valtteri's lap in Monaco in qualifying was the lap of the season for me so far. You know, to get within half a tenth of pole in a car that wasn't, half a tenth off a Ferrari. I think to me that was probably one of the best laps of the season. Bottas as well. 
the impressive thing is when the Mercedes hasn't been at its best, arguably at its worst, he's been the stronger Mercedes driver. So he's maybe not always quite got to Hamilton's level when everything's working, but when things haven't been right, he's he's really stood out. And I think that's that's very impressive. That's very positive for Mercedes as well. There'll always be some a few bad days for Hamilton when things don't quite string together. And if you've got a driver in the other car who's very good at but I think extracting it, yeah. what he can, then that's positive. But Kimi did that, I think, in you know, in Monaco and in Budapest. The yes. two weekends where Ferrari were the quickest team, Kimi stepped up. And yep. you know, Sil- I think Silverstone as well, you know, we talked about it before, he was quicker than Vettel. And actually the dream lives on. I think Kimi's gonna get another year out of it because he's done enough to show that he's a he's a solid number two to Seb. He's not controversial. Um and he's he's you know he's qualifying his averages can't be that far off must be within a tenth and a half two tenths of Vettel across the season. The, the disappointing thing with Raikkonen still is the odd race where he just goes missing. I think Marchioni's much publicised comment of him being an occasional laggard does apply. There are some races where you just think, well, he's he's nowhere in the fight. But I would say, even if he's not been as impressive as the other three in the top teams this year, he, had, he is performing quite well, and his performances have got steadily better since he returned to Ferrari. I think the points make it look a lot worse for Raikkonen than reality. There's been a couple of races this year where he's been wiped out completely through no fault of his own. He would have scored a decent result. So I think he's doing he's doing enough to deliver almost what Ferrari want. I think also there's a kind of, at the moment, the way the market is a lack of alternative options where you can easily go and plug somebody faster and more consistent in and there's those other intangibles he brings to the team all that experience good on the setup apolitical easy to work with these things are quite important when you're trying to build a a healthy team environment to take the fight to to Mercedes and if Ferrari sees for example Charles Leclerc as as the long-term option then obviously they need to give him time with with a Sauber or whoever to to learn learn his trade in F1 I think we say this every year. Next year, the driver market's going to be brilliant. But um, <laughs> I, I genuinely think at the end of 18, you know, you've got Lewis, Ricardo out of contract. Kimi, obviously, out of contract. Vettel, I think, out of, will be... No, well, well, Vettel's out of contract now, So it depends what happens. If, if he only does year. a one-year deal, he'll be out of contract. Yeah. You know, what's Fernando going to do? You've got Leclerc. I, I think you've got quite a few moving pieces in the puzzle for for the end of next year. Um, I agree with Ben. I think the top, you know, Mercedes are going to keep Bottas. I'll be amazed if they drop him. You know, if if I was, it's a tricky one for Bottas, isn't it? Because he's obviously managed by Toto. But if I were Bottas, I'd be having a word with Ferrari. Of course. Exactly, yeah, yeah. 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 You'd definitely saying, be leveraging that. I yeah, think. you'd be leveraging it, saying, you know what? I've proven myself as a, as a you know, driver in a number one team. <sighs> and it wasn't so long ago that they were genuinely chasing him as well, wasn't it? Yeah, he came very close to, to moving there for 16, yeah, I they, think, didn't they? They just wouldn't pay enough cash because there was a release clause level that they didn't quite meet and they were trying to get Williams to do a deal and they, they hung on to him. But obviously when Mercedes came calling that, that didn't apply with Bottas. But yeah, I mean, Bottas will do a very good job. He's probably the one available driver who it would be a, a bit of a no-brainer for Ferrari to get if they could. But I think they probably, you know, they'll probably stick with it one more year, won't they? It's, will they gain much more from having Bottas instead of Raikkonen? Maybe, but you'd think also Mercedes now, having seen what Bottas has been able to do in such a short period of time, they're going to try and, and make sure they hang on to him because they don't want another winter of disruption like they had coming into this season. They, the watchword there is stability and harmony, isn't it? Similar to Ferrari. So I think 
you know, unless something major happens in the Nico Rosberg style, I think it's as as was at the at the top teams, especially when you can see that the Red Bull drivers who everybody would covet because they're the kind of random factor in the driver market. They're locked down for another year, aren't they? It's going to take big money to try and prize that that thing apart. So I think you just leave well alone for now and see what happens in the future. All right, you've done your driver market podcast. So who's going to win the world championship then? I'm going to go for Lewis. I think Lewis Hamilton will win the world championship. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to see Vettel win it for the sake of F1. I think it's nice to have Ferrari winning a championship again. It's been too long and it's good to have Seb win it. But uh, going back to Ed's heart over head thing, I think the head tells me that Lewis is going to win it because Mercedes will have the stronger package. I'm inclined to lean the same way. I think the, one of the problems is while Raikkonen makes a lot of sense for Ferrari, if you're going into a last round decider and you're battling you need to win with Lewis Hamilton third, that might be the point where you think, uh, if Kimi's not on a, not having a good weekend, that's the point where the weakness of that arrangement happens. Whereas if you're Lewis Hamilton and you need to win with Sebastian Vettel third, you're thinking, oh, I've got Valtteri in the other car. That That's quite encouraging. So I wonder if that, that's been a strength so far for Vettel's position because you could argue both Monaco and Hungary could have been Raikkonen wins with Vettel second. And if those were reversed, then you, you're basically dead level for the for Hamilton and Vettel. So yeah, in short, I think I think really overall awesome. Hamilton's got the quicker car. He's a he's a proper mega driver, isn't he? So all, all things being equal or ordinary, that's that should happen. He should be able to overhaul that points deficit. But he is within an unexpected engine failure range where that could reverse the thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, to me, this scenario, just listening to what you're saying there, reminds me of the sort of 98, 99, 2000 McLaren versus Ferrari era, isn't it? Where you've got the two two teams, the two number ones, but actually the number two started to come into play as well. Um, you know, the odd race where DC could take points off Michael was invaluable. I just see more scenarios playing out where Bottas is able to take points off of Vettel potentially over the remainder of the season than Raikkonen is able to take points away from Hamilton. Particularly seeing as Mercedes is the quicker car, so yeah. it's and, and easier to do as well. Development more chassis-wise, I mean, I know it's it's quite early days with the regulations, so it doesn't seem like one is particularly getting ahead of the other in that regard yet. My concern would be with Ferrari on the engine side, we know they lack a bit of power, we know they've got a draggy car compared to Merck as well, so unless they make a big step for the second half of the season on the engine front, I don't really see the balance of power in terms of pure pace changing. And that disadvantages Ferrari, even though it's clear that Raikkonen seems to be supporting Vettel's title bid. So where there's a chance to maximise Vettel's gain over Hamilton, they'll take it. But I just don't see many races over the remainder of the season where they're going to be in the position that they were in Budapest. Is Red Bull going to have a say in this fight? And what do we think about Red Bull in general, been very third overall this year. Well, <laughs> almost under pressure for third early on, but overall, very third. Yeah, very much so. I think um, you know the reliability has been a real, real bugbear for them this season. Um, you know, once again, they they talk about a lot of the issues coming from the very side um, of things. You know, but we, wherever the blame lies, you know, you had. Max losing a lot of points. If you look at Canada, you look at Baku, um, okay, self-inflicted at Budapest, obviously, both cars compromised there. Um, but, you know, they've had a lot of um, points thrown away in, in key moments of the weekends. I think it was interesting. I saw some comments today from Christian talking about how they had the wind tunnel issues um, early on in the season. And that affected them. And, and I, you, you can understand that because really 
these regulations should have been tailor-made for, you know, Rob Marshall and Adrian Newey and that whole team of aero guys there. And it just hasn't happened for them in that respect. Um, you know, in the past, you could debate, oh, they had the best chassis, but not, not the engine or power unit. Well, they haven't had the best chassis this year, and, and the rules really should have favored them. So, you know, the, the, that tends to add up in terms of the issues with the wind tunnel and, and, and the initial compromising the initial design. So, I think this year, yeah, they're going to be third. Uh, next year could be, could be a chance for them. Um, but they need to sort this reliability side out as well because the, as you say, there's there's been a, a lot of weekends where points have just gone away and and they're lucky that Force India's performances have sort of tailed off a little bit. So I think they, they're more secure now. Yeah, and Red Bull will probably be writing off this year now, won't they, and thinking more about 2018, even though the regulations, as you say, seem to suit them down to the ground. Which is all well and good, but this year was meant to be the big year for that. And Yeah, well, for, for the reasons I just mentioned, you know, I think it, it, it hasn't worked out because... Um, you know, Chris, from what reading between the lines, what Christian said, the bigger size car seems to have affected the correlation between wind tunnel and track. And they're not the only team to have suffered that. Force India had the same problem as well. I mean, everyone's had to change their model because it's all new. The cars are new. The tyre model particularly is very different. And that's created some, it sounds in the Red Bull case, some problems in some particular areas, which I think they have solved. But they spent the first four races working out what the problem was and solving that. And they've already then started on the back foot. And Daniel Ricciardo said in Bahrain, it's become a, a worrying pattern now for Red Bull that once they used to be considered the chassis kings, as you mentioned, but in the time that he's been there, they're always starting the season behind and playing catch up. And you're not going to challenge for a world championship if you're consistently doing that. The worry is that they need they haven't started the season on the front foot for a while, regardless of the the ongoing problems with power and reliability from the engine. And they're tricky things, wind tunnels, aren't they? We don't know the, the exact reasons for it, but talking about why does a change in dimension to the car potentially impact your wind tunnel work? Now, obviously, you're creating an artificial airflow regime. The distance from the model to the walls can have an impact. I mean, some have moving wall technology, don't they, to try and mitigate that. But it could it could be something as simple as you get a duff reading because the walls are relatively speaking a bit closer and that that just changes what you're saying. I don't know if that's the specific reason, but that's how a physical car change size can have an impact. And it's huge because, you know, you're talking about not airflow in in a straight line. You're talking about sort of transient aerodynamics, you know, how the aero works when the the wheels are turned through the corner. And And it's also how the airflow, you know, the airflow off the car from other... Because they started off, obviously, when you start doing wind tunnels, you're looking at the airflow off the car. But now they're simulating air points all around the car, and it, it's so complicated. It, it, it is. It's an enormous task, and I think if you go back to 2007 when Renault started having issues at Enstone with with their um, with their wind tunnel and the correlation, it took them a, it took them a year to just get it all recalibrated and fixed. And you know the fact that. Red Bull have lost three months. I think the other problem is Red Bull are competing against two teams with equally big budgets and and equally brilliant people. You can't afford are, to start behind, can you? Yeah, in, who, in who are situation. just developing so, so quickly. And it's so rare that a team starts behind and catches up nowadays. Yeah. yeah. It's so rare. But it, it does seem, though, like Red Bull have, have got on top of their problems now. It seems like the last few upgrades they've bought have worked and they're adding performance. And in race trim, 
they're quite competitive, aren't they? When when they're not having to rely on yeah. a Q3 engine mode that doesn't exist well, on the B- Renault Budapest, side, they're, they're competitive. Budapest, I know Seb had the issue with the, with the steering, but if we consider the fact that Max finished 13 seconds behind Seb at the end of the race after a 10-second penalty uh, in the pits, that, that is a really strong performance, I think. Um, and when you consider the Friday pace that they had, it, it was right up there, you know, on a circuit that's not power sensitive. Because I, I, I still think they have the third most powerful power unit. You know, they're behind Ferrari um, and Mercedes by by a reasonable chunk, especially when when it comes to Q3. Yeah, they don't have the reliability in the Renault engine yet to access the power. I think Renault believes the concept. Remember, they redesigned the engine completely for this year, didn't they, to try and improve the development potential. It sounds like there is some unlocked power within that engine, but they can't access it without it blowing itself to bits. So really, Red Bull's prospects in the future rest on whether Renault can find sufficient reliability to allow them to access the extra power. Once Red Bull can get in the mix in qualifying, then it becomes a different championship. But it does seem that qualifying aside, they're kind of almost there now. Looking elsewhere, I don't want to go through every single team in depth, but there's a it's been very fluctuating, the fourth best team in the championship position. Force India is very comfortably fourth. Again, Force India has fairly rarely had the fourth fastest car, certainly on qualifying pace, race to race, uh, race, to race this season. They've been very effective in terms of getting the most out of it. We talked about Renault a fair bit earlier when we were talking about Robert Kubica, but obviously we've got Force India, Williams, Renault, Toro Rosso sort of in that neighbourhood, McLaren showing some signs of improving. So it's quite an interesting little battle there, isn't it, for, for the best of the rest and which, to me, it seems that which team also is able to to get the best out of what they've got is going to be well placed, which is why Force India is, is so strong because even though their drivers have driven into each other a few too many times in recent races, they're still getting double points finishes on a consistent basis. I, I think that's been the key. I mean, in that midfield battle, there have been a lot of times where you get the feeling there's only one car that's maximizing it uh, in the case of Renault. Um, and McLaren too at times as well. McLaren. But I, th- I think you've also had weekends where teams have just sort of dropped the ball. You know, Toro Rosso can't afford to have their drivers hitting each other, same as Force India. In that battle where getting 8th, ninth, 10th is so difficult for those guys, they can't afford to be having drivers taking each other out and, and compromising the end result. So... Um, I've I've been genuinely impressed with Van Dorn, though. I think the last two races, he's made really good progress. I know he's been working really, really hard off track um, with Tom Stallard on really understanding his driving weaknesses compared to Fernando's. um, And they've been looking at a lot of data to try and get on top of it. And and I think the last two weekends have been really convincing. I thought Silverstone and Budapest, he's done a... Uh, it's starting to come good. And this is the Van Dorn that I expected to see in Melbourne. You know, I think he... To me, if you look at the last 10 years um, of top talents to have arrived in F1, I'd have to put Lewis, Verstappen and Van Dorn as, as and Ricardo probably your top four talents that have come in terms of national, uh, you know, junior formula pedigree and, and talent. So, to me, you know, now we're starting to see what he's capable of. Yeah, it's good to see. I think it's very difficult for any driver to go into a team where Alonso's ensconced and has been ensconced for a while. He has a particular driving style. Cars 
naturally end up being developed around him because he's so good and he's a great frame of reference for the engineers. Hard for a rookie driver to come into that environment who maybe doesn't drive naturally in the same way and try to get their head around how they get the most out of that car. And it does seem, though, like the hard work's paying off and that that's good to see. The midfield battle, really up and down. I think Williams started the season with the fastest car, but they, again, haven't been able to develop properly and they've missed a few key results early in the season when they could have scored more points. And they're very erratic, Williams, in terms of where the car's strong and whether they get the best out of it as well. Yeah. And also in terms of up- upgrades, they don't seem to be able to get their upgrades to work in a way like we see from Renault. Like Renault, when they put the floor on, when they put the front wing on, even Force India, this year hasn't quite, the Silverstone upgrade hasn't quite delivered, but in the past couple of years, and you you get the feeling that they just need to unlock the potential somehow. So I think that's that's something that Williams needs to really address is, you know, why aren't they getting the, the aero bits to do what they're supposed to be doing? Yeah, it's a long-running problem for Williams. Yeah, they, it was a problem last year, wasn't it? Pat Simmons said their front wing work didn't work for them and they just they just stagnate. So they start the season well and if they don't maximise their points early on, it becomes a real struggle. And I don't think they have this year, not only because of some results going astray, but also because Lance Stroll was taking a long time to get up to speed. So they've been relying on one car for the most part. And that's kind of written them out of the fight for fourth. I think Renault have actually been consistently quick, haven't they, through most of the first half of the season. There have been a few tracks, Baku, um, where they've struggled. But since they put this this new floor on for Silverstone and some of the other appendages around that, the car's transformed into what looks like the, the fourth quickest, like the clear head of the midfield. So it's now down to, to them to maximise that through the rest of the season and, and score the points that they should. I think McLaren are, well, they're a, they're a top team, really, aren't they? Masquerading as a midfield team. So development-wise, you'd expect them to be strong. But power-wise, they have the, the weakest engine. So there's certain tracks like Budapest and Monaco where there's le- that's less sensitive and they can do well and they have done well. But too much unreliability. They're starting from too far behind. But they are they are quick and they have got one of the best drivers. And then you look at Toro Rosso and think, well, they've got two quick drivers, but they're not really making the most of their opportunities they're not scoring enough points they continue to confuse me Toro Rosso I don't know why uh, I, I I feel like over the last five six years I keep looking at Toro Rosso thinking the car's really quick and then I look at the points table and it's like oh they haven't got <laughs> as many points as I thought <laughs> um, and I, it seems to happen every year Force India are the team that I mean their car is quick but it's certainly not the out and out quickest in the midfield and probably hasn't been at any race this year but Race-wise, they're so sharp, and I think they've absolutely maximised that car almost everywhere. I think the race team is very good at Force India. Very good, I think yeah. they've got very good strategists and race engineers, and I think operationally, they're, they're very, very sharp. I think, And they've got the most out of their two drivers as well, which the other teams haven't. McLaren have had one driver for most of the first half of the season. Williams the same, Renault the same, Toro Rosso arguably the same, even though it looked more even at the start. But the Force India drivers are qualifying right behind each other almost everywhere, finishing right behind each other almost everywhere when they're not driving into each other. I forgot to mention when I was doing my midfield summary, Haas within that group. Ah, yes. Well, Haas is difficult because they fluctuate quite a bit, don't they? So you never really know where they... Are you, are you going to yeah. talk about Roman Grosjean? No, I was just going to say that I think both drivers have been quite solid over the first half of the year, but the team has been perhaps as you'd expect for one that's still finding its feet in Formula 1, I- quite up and down. So when they're on, they're really on. But when they're off, they're nowhere. And I think both drivers are battling against that. I can't understand this braking issue that they still seem to be talking about nonstop. 
every single weekend because you know i i get you have it for a year but a year and a half in and you're still you know and you buy them off the shelf and i i get you got break by wire and it's all tricky um i understand from another team that switched from brembo to ci which is what grosjean's done but magnuson went and then went back to brembo so when you switch over you you've got a couple of days of massive pain um and and i you know as i said i spoke to an engineer in another team who said they went to barcelona pre-season testing and for two days they talked non-stop about brake issues and trying to get the temperature control right and trying to get the brake balance right and and everything working in the right way but once they got over it he says we just don't talk about it anymore he says we just put we just get brakes off the shelf put them on the car and they work you know i think it's been a long time now that has of gone back and forth and tried this and tried that and i'm really confused uh as to why they still can't seem to get on top of it do you think that suggests it's more of a grosjean issue than a genuine has break issue because you don't hear magnuson complain so much about this kind of thing although he's new in the team so maybe he's still trying to establish what's good and what's bad no i think the team has has an issue there you know i look at the number of times that uh, gutierrez was complaining about brakes last year locking up all over the place and struggling grosjean is a bit more vocal about it but the fact that magnuson has gone back and forth a couple of times himself suggests that all there's something there well yeah exactly yeah. although i think magnuson's also done a slightly better job of driving around that problem even grosjean admitted in baku certain tracks like baku and uh, sochi where it's been very smooth and uh, they've had lots of sharp 90 degree corners where i guess you're relying a lot on braking feel grosjean said well kevin's got the same problems and he's just doing a better job driving around them so i think there is some space there for Grosjean to improve himself accepting that it does seem like there's an overall problem that at the moment a team that we should remember is quite small compared to the other midfield teams they just haven't got their head around it yet I don't think beyond that we have to say that they've done a good job yeah I think the aero package is obviously quite good it could not have been easy for a new small team to do what they've done over the last winter race through 2016 and build a car under new regulations that couldn't have been easy i mean we can use all the stories that the other teams do about support from ferrari and blah 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 but force india like to to peddle that story well they all they? do um <laughs> everybody in the midfield will complain about that but i i it's in the rules but also i i think there is genuinely that is that is the ca- business case for the future of f1 well I, it's another it's another competitive team on the grid that wouldn't be there otherwise exactly yeah, and yeah. and i think actually arguably more you know they now all heading that path about you know so what Ross Brown has talked about is more common components things like that because it is mad how can, you know it is mad spending th- spending 300 million a year to send two cars around around in circles it's not sustainable lunacy isn't it but they in some ways yeah but they've done a good job they're ahead of renault in the championship which is a you know manufacturer team and spending a lot more money and recruiting a lot more people so yeah you have to say has have done well i think gunther signer said they benefited from switching focus to 2017 as early as they possibly could last year to give themselves the best run up and they've paid they've not paid they've they've taken a benefit from that um but there's still a lot for them to learn i think and it seems like tire science is one of the areas where they're still really struggling relative to even the 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 midfield opposition which won't be well, quite I'm, as 
as I'm advanced as the sure, top teams. I'm not entirely sure even Pirelli fully understand their tyres. <laughs> no, no, very tricky. But you, you can you can see there are some races where Haas is just able to get the tyres into the working temperature window and perform really strongly, like Austria. And they were saying in the last sector they were close to Ferrari's level of performance in the final sector. And then they come to other tracks where they think, well, it might be similar. And in Budapest, they generally thought they might be quite competitive perhaps, but the temperatures are different and the track surface is different and they're nowhere. So they, they're still struggling to home in on this consistency or should we say consistency of approach where they can kind of, you know, flatten out those those weird peaks and troughs. I'm surprised the um, president of the Sauber fan club hasn't yet brought Sauber up really. I was just thinking that I was going to say, does anyone want to say anything about Sauber and then hoping nobody would? There's not a great deal to talk about in terms of this year's performance, really, is there? Not really a lot to say other than that they're still a team in transition, aren't they? Massive upheaval behind the scenes and flip-flopping on engine deals and changing of team principle. I think but now... all for the good, though. Oh, think, absolutely, oh, yeah, yeah. So, I think there's positive, you know, doing the Ferrari engine deal is good. Absolutely. Having Fred Vassil there is good. Very good. I think they're going to get Leclerc. Which should be excellent. Deal, which should be excellent. I think he deserves to be in Formula One. Yeah. So um, next year, you'll get, I think, a much better idea of where they're at. It is good to see that they, they've been developing the car, even if it's not been successful and they've had a few blips in terms of what's worked and what hasn't. I mean, that's been an age-old problem for them since the, the BMW days, hasn't it? But... It's good to see that the investment is there in the team and they're actually able to bring parts to the car. I think last season they barely bought anything until Japan and it was a, it was a real mess and it's been quite difficult for them. So I think Sauber are, are coming back up and they've scored points as well in a couple of races. So that's good to see as well. But I think, you know, they are, they are definitely cast adrift off the back of the grid. So a lot of work to do to, to get themselves properly into the midfield fight. And they've also got two drivers who clearly hate each other as well. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of arguing going on there for, you know, often not much reward and you wonder why they're arguing so heavily. Well, those, I think those two drivers, are, they've got nothing to fight for again, apart from honour against themselves, right? So Verline knows he needs a decent season because his career is almost hanging by a thread because he didn't get the Force India drive for this year. And Ericsson knows that he can't be a sour driver forever. If he wants to get taken seriously, he needs to use this year against Verline to show that he can he can be better than a Mercedes junior. Does anyone have any other business they want to raise? I think we've, we've covered the season fairly thoroughly so far. Well, I, th- I think the other point is um, just... F1 in general. I think there's a lot going on, isn't there? This this year has been a lot of eyes on on the three musketeers, uh, Chase Carey, Sean Bratches and, and Ross Brown and how they're changing uh, F1 or what they're going to change in F1. Um, certainly, I mean, I, I for one don't expect anything. Yeah, we've seen a bit of social media rules and a bit of this, a bit of that. But it's a lot of noise at the moment. It, though, it's, it really? it's nothing, nothing revolutionary. But I think that's that's right. I don't think we're going to see anything revolutionary till 2020. The trouble is, we're not going to see the Formula One that certain people seem to be claiming, whereby all the teams get paid more money, there's more investment in everything, circuits pay less money, TV broadcasts are going to be made more available. Well, that's just mathematics. That, well, that is mathematics, but also, but it needs to be there needs to be a realism about it because you're quite right. They didn't need to rush into things and make ridiculous snap decisions. I thoroughly agree with being very rigorous in terms of taking a sensible approach. But right now, everyone's in that... There's that little honeymoon phase, isn't it, where everyone thinks, oh, it's going to be absolutely perfect. Just because it's that, different. Yes, it's different down the line. I'm sure there'll be some positives, and we have seen some improvement, but I think we have to 
very, very much wait and see actually what tangible comes out of this. I think the the good thing overall is that this year has been much more competitive than any of the last three. So from a Which spect- is actually nothing to do with Liberty. No, of course. No, but, from, but, it. but from a spectacle point of view, Formula 1 is more exciting than it's been for a while. It's more interesting. The cars are faster, I think. And there's a championship it, fight. You know, their, their, their business is going to depend on Formula 1's popularity and the amount of interest there is in it. And I think this season has been a good advert for Formula 1 relative to the, to the seasons before. Talking of adverts, now that we've covered the whole F1 season, I think it's time to tell everybody to remember to check out autosport.com and Autosport magazine out every Thursday. And on autosport.com, our subscriber plus section, which has all sorts of articles by Ben Anderson and even sometimes Karun Chandok, who turns up as a writer. Basically, if we want so versatile, if we want somebody to do your job properly, we get Karun in. (laughs) We get Karun in to do it. I'm under pressure now. Exactly. exactly. Second half of the season, will you be drafted in for Spa? Step it up, Anderson. Step it up. And also, you've never bought cake and, and cake and biscuits. Karina I've supply, bought cake, but maybe not for you. Not enough cake for me. No, I'm, I'm infinitely bribable with cake. <laughs> so, uh, Karun and Ben, thanks for thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.